welcome to season two of the ISC podcast. My name is Genevieve Stowe, and throughout this series, I will talk with industry leaders about their career journeys and what they've learned along the way. It won't just be me doing the interviewing though, there'll be cameos from the ISC team and even some ISC members too. Some of these episodes have been pre-recorded with a live audience. Therefore, some of the questions you hear will have come from ISC members themselves, and we request your patience with any technical issues we might have had. In today's episode of the podcast, we have a conversation between Vicky Carter and Kelly Outram, which was recorded in November 2020. Vicky and Kelly discuss Vicky's extraordinary career in insurance, which has lasted 40 years. It's a journey which continues to go from strength to strength, with Vicky being recently appointed Deputy Chairman of Lloyds. The pair delve into Vicky's wealth of experience, including anecdotes on how best to work in a hard market, as well as how you can set yourself apart as a broker. Thank you so much to Vicky and Kelly for giving up their time to speak with us. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kelly Outram, and I work in the construction practice of Marsh JLT Specialty Leading Off. Global Contractors Initiative. And I'm very delighted and honoured today to be hosting this Q&A session with Vicky Carter, who's got a very, very impressive uh, CV and, and title to read out here. She's the chairman of the Global Capital Solutions International at Guy Carpenter on the Guy Carpenter UK Board and Guy Carpenter Global Exec Committee. Vicky is also a member of the Lloyd, Council of Lloyds and a member of the Lloyds Risk Committee and the Lloyds Nomination and Governance Committee. She's also chairman of the Lloyds Charitable Trust. She's well known to many of us in the insurance industry. In 2019, Vicky was honored at Incisive Media's Women in Insurance Awards, winning the award for Insurance Woman of the Year for large firms and the Judge's Choice of Outstanding Achievement Award in recognition of a woman who has risen to the top of her career and is an inspiration to future female leaders. Hi, everybody. Uh, pleasure to be part of the ISC's um, chat today. Um, my name is Vicky Carter. Uh, Kelly has given me a very, very generous welcome and uh, sort of introduced me. So I'm not sure I need to really run through that. Uh, just to say that I've been in the industry for, God, it's quite scary to say 40 years now. It's an incredibly long time. It was never planned like that. Can't believe I'm still here. But I have to say, it's probably been the most amazing journey, something that was never planned, but um, something I'm just so grateful. Um, it's been just incredible every step of the way. So how did you actually break into the insurance industry? Because am I correct in saying that I believe you've got a quite an unusual story um, in that you considered a career in medicine first, which for me is at the opposite end of the spectrum to insurance. So I'm sure some of us would be quite interested to understand a bit more about that. Well, actually, Kelly, it's quite funny because I'm not sure medicine is the opposite end of the spectrum. If you think about it, um, in our industry, people come to you as a broker. People come to me with challenges and problems, and I try to fix them. So in a way, it's a little bit like medicine. But yeah, I did. I, I was at school. Um, I Not a particularly academic school. I was at a school that I spent most of my time on the lacrosse field um, or dancing. They were my two passions. And uh, my A-level grades came through. They were good. I phoned up um, Bart's and Guy's because uh, I'd always thought about possibly doing medicine. And they both offered me a place, but subject to um, taking a year off because I was too young to start. I was only 17 when I did my A-levels. 
So I had a year off and I started at uh, St. Bartholomew's uh, City and probably one of the most respected uh, teaching, medical teaching hospitals in the world. And um, I started there in, when was that? 1978 on my medical journey. And I have to be totally honest with you. The reason why I'm in the reinsurance sector is because I flunked my physics paper um, by 2%. And as a result of that, I had to go off and do a retake because I did something in those days called First MB, which was really geared for people who hadn't done three science A-levels. Um, and it was mainly made up of um, sort of graduates down from Oxford and Cambridge who had done law and wanted to switch to medicine. Um, so unfortunately, I flunked the physics. I went off to sort of... Um, potentially retake it. And then my father said, you're not going to have another year swanning around the world um, because that's what I did in my gap year. He said, you've got to work. I think you should go to the city. And I just went, you must be kidding me. And my vision of the city was just, you know, dull, gray, boring. And God, how wrong I was. But anyway, I went reluctantly to keep in quiet um, because he wasn't going to fund me for another year. And here we are 40 years later. So I mean, nothing was planned. As is, as is often the case. And, um, you know, sometimes we hear stories of people knowing people in insurance or they, or they fell in it, but it's quite nice to hear a slightly different angle. Um, if, if we think about that, Vicky, just, you know, having a, you know, a, an unusual entry perhaps into the insurance sector, how has it changed? I mean, you're obviously a, a seasoned insurance and reinsurance expert, but I guess over that time span, the, the industry itself has undergone a massive change um maybe you could share some of those changes that you've seen along the way and, and and how you see that moving forward oh my god i mean it has changed so much i mean i don't really know where to begin there's so many areas and and ways it has adapted and changed um if you just take lloyd's i mean lloyd's has been going 330 years and it's been an amazing kept adapting to you know the challenges and the changes that it's faced if you look at the industry as a whole, um, when I first came in, I mean, there were literally no, no females really in the industry, certainly in Lloyd's. I think there were two or three of us in, in the whole room. So it was pretty daunting. I think today, you know, every company now seems to have adopted a pretty active um, DNI culture. And you would hope that, you know, that's not just ticking boxes that they do fulfill, you know, following those through within their organizations, which is incredibly important. And I don't mean just about the male-female balance. I'm talking about a diverse thought leadership program, you know, diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, because that's what makes a company. It's having all those different thoughts. So I think the industry has changed um, the way, you know, the way business is negotiated today. You know, so much of it is done electronically, so much is done much more efficiently you know we're losing a lot of the paper um and i just think generally um if you look at the way people buy reinsurance now i mean as a broker i think the role of the broker has completely transformed since the days when i came in to now i mean as a broker now you've really got to be able to advise uh, offer advice right across the spectrum to you know not only help a company manage volatility but you've got to help them optimize capital You've got to help them with future strategy. You've got to help them with new products. You've got to help them with potential M&A prospects. So it's, it's, it's diverse. It's challenging. I think the demands are so much greater today. And, of course, 
you know, as an industry, we constantly face new challenges as we're going through right now with COVID and having to build and adapt products to those new challenges. I mean, the nature of risk is changing so fast and so furiously, and we have to keep up with that. So the industry has to keep adapting to make sure that it does keep pace with those changes. So I think it's something that the transformation has been huge in the time, but I think we're probably going into an even faster transformation now as we go into more sort of technology-driven systems and the way people operate. What do you think is the greatest threat for young people starting off their careers in the middle of a global pandemic? I mean, I'm not quite sure. I think you could go on for a lot there, but it's quite an interesting dynamic given where we are and what you've just said. I think... I think the real challenge at the moment, I mean, if you look at working, uh, working remotely, working from home, um, I'm sure people have found it generally very, very efficient in terms of what you can get done. If you look at the pluses of it, you know, you can bring people in from around the world literally within an hour. Whereas if you try to set up a meeting with people from all over the world, it could. T- That's great for people who've got the contacts been able to build the relationships up. The thing that really worries me is how do we pass that knowledge on to the next generation coming in and the younger generation coming in? You know, I've had the benefit of building for 40 years, building relationships up. And those relationships have all been done through meeting people face to face, with lunches, with dinners, with traveling. And those relationships have been absolutely critical to you know my business negotiations and also my career i mean without those i wouldn't be where i am today so we have an obligation to make sure that we pass help pass that knowledge on to the next generation and i think one of the things that we've got to look at very carefully coming out of covid and coming out of the remote working is how do we engage that generation how do we help them build those relationships how do we help them build the knowledge, you know, around the whole industry? And, you know, like universities are doing, we may have to go on to more remote courses. We may have to go on to more mentoring one-to-one. Um, it is a challenge, and I think it's something we've got, we've got to think very carefully about. I, I kind of, you know, it's interesting when you think about what we've gone through, and we try to drag the younger generation, I think, to the way that, we used to work, we've been used to working, you know, walking around Lloyd's with great big slip cases and piles of files and things like that. I think this pandemic has actually dragged our generation back to more the younger generation, how they work, that we go much more, you know, on social media and, you know, through technology. So I think it's a really interesting transformation, um, but it is something that we, you know, we do need to focus on very, very carefully and I, certainly within our operation and, and certainly within Lloyd's, it's something we're spending a lot of time thinking about how do we help the next generation if we go to far more remote working. So it's a really, really good point. And, and it's something I think that, you know, challenges us all. And, you know, we've got to work much harder at better, better communication. I think, you know, one of the most important things that we've learned through this pandemic and remote working is communication is absolutely critical and you cannot over communicate. And I don't just mean communicating with your clients. I mean, communicating with your workforce, with all your employees, with your teams, because that keeps you connected. um, And that information flow is really, really important. And then when you look at the customer side of things, 
for the clients, they're probably in the most, you know, one of the most challenging periods they are. So staying close to the client and giving them as much expertise and knowledge that you can pass on to them, again, is going to be invaluable to them and to you with them, that your relationship with them. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think as, as I certainly think about our side of the business, um, you know, and, and how everyone kind of emerges out of the working from home and, and post-COVID era, it will be interesting to see what kind of hybrid models people will adopt. And I think you and I had mentioned that in a previous discussion that we may have had about, you know, we may end up seeing in the insurance market in general more of a hybrid model where there is some working from home and there is obviously some you know, face-to-face contact, which is, you know, from an, from our industry, such a crucial part of, of what we do. What what do you think around the whole hybrid model and, and where do you see that going in terms of, as an industry, perhaps being more attractive to a more diverse pool of talent because uh, it's a more flexible industry in itself? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, I have to say that, you know, COVID, I think, has probably accelerated certainly John Neal's plans with Blueprint by probably at least five years. Um, and I think, you know, I always say to people, if anybody had said to us back in January, right, in a couple of weeks' time, the whole industry has got to convert to remote working, there would have been, you know, a rebellion. Everybody would have thought of every reason why it couldn't happen. And guess what? Overnight, we virtually, virtually overnight, everybody did it. And it, and it was an amazing transformation. Um, I think, you know, as I said to you, there's a lot of efficiencies about working from home. Um, You know, there's a lot of good things about it in in terms of, well, think of T&E to start with. Every company must have saved a fortune on travel and entertainment this year. And then you look at just what it does to you. You know, you spend your life on an airplane racing around the world. You know, it's not exactly great, great for you health wise. Um, but what's really efficient about it is, as I say, you can pull people together very quickly. You know that people are at home, so you can get hold of them. They're not out. They're not off. And Zoom is, or Zoom or Teams or any of the, these sort of um, systems you use is great because you still feel connected by seeing somebody. The, the negatives are of it. The face-to-face has been so important in our industry, and I think there's certain products that are more commoditized that will be much more efficiently handled through, obviously, electronic means. But there are complex negotiations, and particularly in the reinsurance sector, where you know you're unbundling and rebundling risk um, that gets incredibly complex. Having that face-to-face is is invaluable. And then there's just you know you might go and have a coffee with somebody and you might go with one specific reason and you come out with something completely different because you've had a conversation and something's come up or you bump into somebody in the road. And I think those are still really important elements that that social interaction is absolutely key. Um, If you look at Lloyd's, I think Lloyd's, you know, Lloyd's have already talked about going to a hybrid model. And I think actually a lot of companies will move to that. So I think they will offer flexibility to their workforce, which is great because it means, you know, if, if, if anybody wants to go off, if they want to go off and, you know, have babies or, or look after their kids for a year or two, you know, they can still work and they still have the ability to work. And you can work remotely from anywhere in the world. So, again, what, what it does offer is the ability to bring in very diverse talent from all over the world and still get the value of that into your business, wherever you're located. So to me, there's a tremendous benefit um, of the flexibility that it it will provide. 
but I still think there's one key element of you know keeping people connected face to face. And I think you know what will be interesting in Lloyd's. I mean, one of the crazy things I suggested they should do with Lloyd's if they're going to change the room. If and I'm not saying they are, but if they do change the room and they remove all the underwriting boxes down the line in the future, maybe make the whole of the ground floor an innovation center. How cool would that be? So you're really attracting smart talent to into you know EC3, get them generating ideas around new product development. I think there would be a phenomenal idea, phenomenal idea, A, to make it exciting for young people to come to and great, great for Lloyd's. I mean, London is already the fintech center of the world and it's the insurtech center of the world. So to me, we should be building on that. The one bit I really miss, Kelly, funny enough, are the lunches and the dinners because I'm so bored of my own cooking. So we cannot wait to go back to lunches or dinners. It would be so nice to sort of be able to see people real life. I think um, there was some, there's some chat coming through well about your innovation comment, and I, I personally love that. And I think, um, you know, this would link into two of the questions that have come through. One is, what's your vision for the, um, for the Lloyds building, and in particular the room in the medium and long term? And I guess this plays to what you just said, Vicky, is, you know, is there, are, are we now massively accelerating in our industry new ideas, which frankly would not have been at the forefront of our minds, um, you know, six, 12 months ago? You know, our global pandemic has kind of completely turned what well, most industries on their head, but particularly ours. Um, you know, when you're talking about things like innovation and, you know, bouncing around some of these ideas, do you feel that they are taken a lot more seriously now, given that people are much more open-minded in what they think can happen moving forward? I think they were taken seriously. I think they're getting a lot more probably attention now, to be honest. Um, I think if you look, I mean, the, the one of the things that I always sort of harp on about is I, I don't think there's enough publicity around the Lloyd's Lab because I think there's some fantastic stuff going on within the Lloyd's Lab. But I keep saying to John Neal, it's tucked away on the fourth floor. It's been crammed into a relatively small space. They could do so much more with that. And I think it's something that you will see. But there's some amazing innovation going on within that. I mean, for example, the last syndicate in the box that came out called Parcel is all about transporting um, vaccinations around the world. Well, that's going to take off soon. So, you know, there are some really exciting things. I, I'm sort of working with... Um, Andrew Brooks from As uh, Ascot and Dominic um, Christian from Aon, the three of us are driving the, the pandemic initiative uh, for Lloyd's that we're working on at the moment, which is challenging, but really interesting. And I think if you look at, you know, where we're going with green energy, um, the transformation about, you know, energy, what's going to happen in the energy sector, what's going to happen in the motor industry. I mean, if you look at, you know, we're going to be moving into a completely different world in terms of automobiles, you know, in, in, 2030, um, they've already come out that, you know, you won't be able to buy new petrol cars and things like that. So what's going to happen to the motor industry? Um, you know, that's going to change. And the liability in that is going to shift from the, you know, from the driver to the manufacturer when we go into driverless cars. So there's so much stuff going on. Um, I think that we need to do more. I think we need to do a lot more as an industry of creating products. Um, climate change is one of the biggest challenges um, in the world, not only to our business, but if you think what's happened this year with, you know, we've had more U.S. severe weather 
um, storms, not just, the, you know, the hurricanes you've seen recently, like Sally, like um, uh, Laura, but, you know, there was the retro in the Midwest, which was an un really unusual but really damaging, you know, storm that hit the Midwest. You've had the Beirut explosion. Sorry, that's not climate. But you've got things like wildfire, you know, which was never considered a major cap, but that's becoming now almost an annual peril. So, you know, there's massive changes going on, which a lot of people think are very much driven by climate change. So we've got challenges with climate change. We've got challenges with cyber as we go more into a tech-driven world where the risks where we're exposing ourselves, you know, from cyber are going to get greater and greater. Then you go on to energy, changes in energy. You go on to motor. You go on to health. You go into the gaps between the private and the public sector. There's massive gaps there. Um, so there's so many things that we could be doing, and I think our industry has to evolve faster to try and meet and match some of those challenges. Um, you know, you have yourself worked in large organisations and also some smaller organisations. Um, you know, looking looking with your crystal ball ahead. Um, what what place is there for smaller reinsurance brokers um, as we kind of navigate a new landscape? Look, I, I've worked, you know, when I started my own company in 1992, we were eight people. So I've worked in somewhere with eight people where we had to kill for every piece of business we got because we had no front-end business or no insurance business to trade off. I'm now working, well, for the short, not working for the short time. What I mean. We are the largest in the world at the moment, but obviously when the Aon Willis thing goes over, we'll be back to number two. But, you know, I'm now working in the biggest. So, you know, I've, I've experienced both. Um, I'm a huge fan of small niche operations because I think they can offer a very bespoke service. And I think a lot of the time, you know, the individuals in there are much more hungry for business. There tends to be, and I don't say this lightly, but there does tend to be a certain amount of complacency in the large broking operations um, in the sense that, you know, people fear, you know, know they're going to be given business because their company has, you know, billions going in at the front end and they know they're going to get something on the back end. And, you know, sometimes there's a degree of complacency where maybe they aren't as hungry as they should be or they're not offering as much as they should to the clients, which a small broker, you know, will do. So to me, there's always a place. And, and to get a marketplace, you do need to have a bit of everything and you need competition. Um, if you don't challenge and you don't compete, you're never going to get the best of the clients. So I think there's a room for both. The challenge, and maybe somebody would have said to me, so why didn't you set up another broking operation? And in my heart of hearts, I would love to because I had so much fun doing it. The biggest challenge today is the technology, you know, and the the investment you need to put into technology and infrastructure, which is, you know, fairly considerable. And, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges the smaller companies have is how do they compete in terms of the science and the analytics, which obviously an organization like ours or Aon or Willis or, you know, Hyperion have that ability to have all that. So that is a challenge. But I think, again, it's down to, you know, niche specific plays. There's, there's always a place for that. So that that's actually one another another kind of thread that's coming through here. What are the biggest challenges for the industry to remain relevant? Technology, which you you just um, appropriately mentioned, you know, addressing emerging new risk, attra attracting talent, attracting capital through capital markets. You know, I, I guess you could go down many different routes here. But from your personal perspective, where do you see the kind of 
real headline challenges um, moving forward? Um, I think it. I think it depends. I mean, uh, we've touched on some in terms of products. So I think products is absolutely key. Um, I think our industry gets, you know, really bad publicity a lot of times. I mean, through COVID and the challenges with the FCA case and the Supreme Court, I think we're getting a lot of negative, you know, negative feedback, which I think is very unjust. Because if you look at the societal good, our industry, what we have paid out billions and billions and billions of pounds and dollars across the world to help societies rebuild after catastrophic events. Um, so I think we get a lot of bad publicity. I think some of the big challenges are going to be what I've already mentioned. The protection gap is a really big challenge. Um, and I think we've got to do a lot more. If we're going to have future pandemics, which could be a reality now, or there are going to be bigger sort of particularly around cyber, have we got to do a lot more to fill that gap uh, between the private and the public sector? So I think there's a challenge there. Um, as we talked about, climate change is, is going to be at the top of everybody's risk, risk register for a long, long time uh, yet. And I think, you know, there are going to be challenges around that. I think in terms of if we bring it back to London, I'm going to just touch on Lloyd's for a minute. One of the biggest challenges um, for Lloyd's has been um, main, maintaining its market share. I think in terms of the insurance side, you know, they've, they've grown, they've got more business reinsurance, they've lost some market share. If you look at Lloyd's, I mean, the challenge Lloyd's has had over the last couple of years is the poor performance of the market generally. And if you look at the Lloyd's combined ratio, it's sat above 100% for the last couple of years, which is really unacceptable. And so Lloyd's is at a, at a difficult pace where it's got to look and manage the performance of that market you know, in a much tougher way. So you're seeing very, very stringent business planning process in place now, which some syndicates will complain about, but at the same time, they tend to be the syndicates that have performed badly. So I think, you know, one of the challenges for Lloyds is they've got to ensure that they're much tougher on the poor performers. So it enables the, the top quartile, the good performers can grow and do the things they want to do. So they've tried to bifurcate the performance management process um, in a way that there's the soft touch and there's the, you know, the heavy touch. So the soft touch or the light touch means that those syndicates that have performed well will have had a much simpler ride through this year. And the really top quartile syndicates literally lodged their plan and had it approved immediately. Um, whereas the worst performers have had some real challenges coming out of classes, having to remediate. So I think that's been a challenge for Lloyd's to get, you know, to get the loss ratios back down. Um, and that's driven heavily by the PRA. You know, Lloyd's gets the flack, but it's the PRA who manage it. It's, you know, we, we are managed, we're a self-regulated market, but we also have the PRA. And then, of course, there's a challenge around, you know, capital, how much capital and to maintain the rating. So, you know, that's another challenge Lloyd's has to always ensure that, the capital of the market is sufficient to maintain its rating, which is critical. Um, other challenges, are, I think, are things like the capital markets. Um, we've seen a lot of um, a lot of the alternative capital got stuck. Um, the collateralized market got stuck. Um, it, capital was trapped there because of the losses, um, and that's probably frightened a certain number of those alternative capital providers to um, or prevented them from being able to, you know, reissue that uh, capital into opportunities for 2021. So that's probably been a bit of a pain for them. 
But at the same time, there's a huge amount of new capital market already. I mean, billions of new capital coming in. But I think what we're seeing is it's much more selective to where it goes. So it wants really seasoned management teams who have got a really first-class track record. So I think that's a, another interesting challenge too. So I don't know. I've tried to sort of cover a few things. I've probably gone a bit fast through it. But no, not at all. I'm sure everyone's. Um, I'm sure everyone's finding it very insightful. I, I guess one of the questions, um, an anonymous one, is. Where do you see the growth in the insurance as an investment product coming from? Do you see new investors wanting to partake in this market? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look at, you know, I think there's no question the interest rates are going to remain incredibly flat or low or even negative in some regions of the world. And, you know, the insurance sector, particularly now with, you know, the rate increases as a result of, you know, low interest rates, huge number of cap losses a huge increase in attritional losses. We've got also, you've got um, developing back years from some of the casualty lines. You've seen what's going on in the States with some of the court awards, and now that's creeping into the UK too. All those headwinds are forcing us to go into a hardening market. And I think what that does is it makes it very attractive for alternative capital to come into the sector. Because again, it's completely diversified from some of their other investments, and that's what they like. So I think it's absolutely remains um, a very attractive sector to be in. Um, I think that you've seen a number of the pension funds come back in this year, investing in new companies being set up, both in Bermuda and actually there's a couple going through in Lloyd's at the moment. So yeah, the answer is absolutely. There is still a huge amount of capital waiting to come into this market. Um, you mentioned then in terms of where the market is and, you know, it's obviously in a very transitional uh, phase. But what are the messages from some of the key reinsurers out there? Are we at a pivotal point in the market? Um, you know, where do you see rate movements kind of in the short to medium term? Again, appreciate you haven't got a crystal ball, but I'm sure many of us will be really interested in some of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Are we in a hard market? I think we're going into a hard market. There's no question about that. The majority of lines, I think most lines are seeing, you know, some quite interesting increases. I think what you've got to be careful about, it's not the size of the rate increase. I think it's the risk adequacy, the rating adequacy for the risk. That is the most important question to ask. So you could have a class, particularly what we're seeing on some of the casualty classes. You know, you're seeing it in some of the professional lines, you know, the international professional lines. You could have a price hike of 100% but it probably should be 200%. So what is going to be very interesting to watch is will naive, I mean, is there naive capacity today? Probably not. There's still some pretty poor underwriting, I think. But will some of those people jump into these classes and ultimately get burnt because they don't really understand it and they've seen that there's a great rate increase and an opportunity to take advantage of that? Or And I think you'll see a bigger bifurcation between poor performance and good performance, because I think the really smart operators will come through this extremely well. They will pick their way very carefully through the different classes and they will take advantage of, you know, huge rate increases in certain classes. Um, but they could leverage that against reinsurance. So I think, you know, it's a very interesting market. Certainly it's a market we've all waited for for years. It's probably akin to um, post 2005, um, post-Katrina, 
um, and when the year when we had Katrina, Rita and Wilma. Um, but what's interesting about this is COVID is probably, you know, going to be a loss that continues for a long, long time. Because what we're now starting to see is there's going to be a lot of um, legal legal involvement as reinsurers now try to collect COVID and aggregate losses against reinsurance. And there's going to be a huge fight um, against that with certain reinsurers. So I think it's going to be messy. I don't think there's any clear answer at the moment. I think people are posturing. Um, I think if you look at the court announcement that came out in Australia, which I think surprised every, everybody where you know, the court ruled against the insurers, that was a surprise. Um, we'll wait and see what comes out of the Supreme Court, which you know, will be soon. But I think you know, litigation around COVID is going to drag on for ages. So I think you know, that loss could creep over time. Yeah, I guess it's um, it's still a bit of a, a waiting game at the moment, isn't it? Um, on that topic and and the topic of you know the, the market we're now in, I guess for some people they may have never really worked in a market that is kind of in a in a hard phase. So when we talked before about you know emerging talent and you know the the changing landscape of, of working in the industry, what skill sets do you think you know brokers? Um, and people in the wider industry will need as we kind of enter a new a new era, really, in terms of you know where the market is. I think I think it's interesting. I mean, breaking in a in a hard market is always very different. I think anybody can tend to do anything in a soft market. A hard market is much more challenging. Um, and what we've tried to do is we've tried to help you know give a lot of advice to some of our younger brokers who have never experienced before. And, you know, what we say to them is always, you know, manage expectations, manage, manage, manage expectations. So have a very clear understanding from your client. You know, if you can't get what your client wants, what are the alternatives? So if you go and broke something into an underwriter and, you know, they're not going to give you what you want, always look for opportunities, look for other alternatives and other structures that could work so that you can go back to your client and say, look, they're not going to do this. However, we've got this or we've got that. And don't give up. You know, you've just got to keep keep pushing. It's it, it's tough. You've got to know your stuff. You've got to come out with the right arguments. And I think the other thing is probably more than ever now, I think this is a time of differentiating between clients that, you know, not all clients are going to be the same. And I think that's an important factor for clients to feel that, you know, they have been treated, you know, on the back of their own results and not just along with the rest of the herd. You know, you always want to feel special. You want to feel different, and you want to feel that you know your best terms on the basis of the information of your operation, not just because that's what everybody's getting priced at. So, you know, that's what we're trying to sort of install to some of our younger brokers. And as I say, communication, communication, communication. Keep talking to people. Keep talking to your clients. Um, it's really, really key. And this is a time they're going to need you more than ever. And what you deliver for them now, they'll never forget that. You know, when times are hard, they will always remember the people who went the extra mile to help them. And, you know, I, I can relate to, gosh, a story years ago. I mean, it goes back a long, long time. It was back in or probably in the 80s sometime. And there was a, one of the kiln syndicates and they had a, one of their reinsurance layers. 
And the other brokers, the big brokers, um, couldn't do it. They were stuck around, I don't know, 70% or something like that. I can't remember the numbers now. And I remember for some reason I, I was chatting to the underwriter and, and he said, you know, do you think you could fill this? And I said, well, I'll give it a go. And it was summer. So all the guys are off playing golf or, you know, at the pubs or whatever they used to do in those days when, you know, there was nothing to do in the summer. It wasn't like now and you're busy all year. And so I just spent, you know, a couple of weeks plodding around the Lloyd's Market. I'm not joking. I probably went to 40 syndicates in those days. There was something like 99, oh, no, there weren't. Sorry, there were 400 syndicates when I first went into the room, 400 syndicates. And I just plodded around, you know, beg, stealing and boring. Can you help me? Can you help me? And I got the thing done. And they were so, so delighted that I'd taken that trouble. The next year, they brought me in and gave me half the entire program. And then I ended up taking that program over and it stayed with me for 20 years. And it was a, it was a great program. It was a, a fabulous program to place. So, you know, never give up and just keep plodding because people do appreciate when you really put the extra mile in. Yeah, no, great, great advice. And um, one of the questions here has asked, have you had a mentor, Vicky, when you're sharing some of these stories now, which which for many of us listening uh, are super impressive. Have you had a mentor throughout your career or how have you, have you just always had that kind of go out and, and, and try attitude that you've founded yourself? I suppose I have to be honest, I'm probably quite competitive by nature. Um, I was known as a bit of a beast on the lacrosse field. (laughs) And I had three brothers and a sister, three brothers. So yeah, I've probably come through, you know, fighting a little bit. I was the baby too, so you have to fight your way, you know, fight. Your- <laughs> um, but I, I didn't really, I've never been on any, I mean, this is this is what's amazing. People will fall over if they hear this, but I've never, ever been on a reinsurance course, an insurance course. I've never had any formal training whatsoever. Everything I've learned, I've picked up by being thrown in the deep end. Um, so all I'd say is never be frightened of that and just be, very, very honest. If you don't understand something, don't pretend you do. Just always be honest um, and speak up around that. But uh, what I think the thing that's really helped me is I think I could pick out probably four, four clients who, maybe even five, maybe even six clients who have probably been my mentors. Just through hard work, they really took me under their wing. And they're the people who really encouraged me to sort of go on and do things and get things done. And I've always sort of turned to them for advice. And it's been really amazing to have those. And I think, you know, in this market, look, are there times when I felt really down? Absolutely. There are times when I've gone home, I've felt, God, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm no good at it. Or, you know, somebody says something, you just take it. I take it all really, really personally. So when I go out with a risk, even now, I take it totally, per- I, want to, I want to deliver for me as much as for my company to my client. I want them to turn around and say, nobody would have done a better job. If Vicky can't do it, nobody will be able to do it. And I think that's a little bit come from just the encouragement I've been given by those, those clients. And, you know, they were senior figures in the market and they've been amazingly supportive to me. And, you know, at a time when, you know, I had really no other female to turn to throughout my whole career. There hasn't been anybody else for me to sort of reach out to. And I remember things like my very first Monte Carlo. I mean, I had no idea what Monte Carlo was all about. You know, I had no idea what do you wear down there? What do you do down there? 
you can imagine turning to a guy and saying, you know, what do you wear down there? And they say, well, you just wear, you know, uh, you know, khaki trousers and a and a t-shirt, and you go, mm, well. So, and and I've never been frightened of being different. You know, don't try to be like the rest of the herd. I think be different. You know, that's think of an interview. You've got a few minutes to stand out and be different, um, and be selected. So, you know, I've never been sort of. The idea of only being the only girl has never really daunted me. It's almost been the thing that's pushed me to go on to show people that, you know, we can do it. Females, we can do, oops, sorry. We can do things just as well as, um, just as well as anybody else can do. So those are, those are a few tips which I hope are helpful, but. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure that would be, well, I'm sure it's very inspiring for everyone listening, but, um, you know, you were awarded the Insurance Women of the Year, which is a huge accolade and um, I'm, I'm sure very, very well deserved. Um, but what would your advice be to women out there who are trying to become leaders in the industry, noting all of the advice you've just given then? But, you know, th- things are, the landscape is changing, I think, for the better. Um, but, you know, what advice would you give? Well, I, I just say, first of all, it's the most amazing industry everything out there that touches you as an individual there's there's some something in the industry which will relate to it so think of that and what i would say is don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do something you know don't say well you're never going to get there it you you can get there and and you have to put the hard work in and you've got to put the determination in so there's no way around putting the hard work and the effort in but in my opinion, this is an industry. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So the more you get, you know, I know we can't at the moment, but if we were in, you know, in normal time, pre-COVID times, I'd say the more you get out and meet people and talk to people and engage with people, the more you'll learn things. And I used to find as a broker, when I broke to one underwriter, he'd say something about the risk. And then I used to use what he said to go and broke it to the next. So you learn as you go along. And I just think, you know, today more than ever, you nobody can hold you back now. I mean, every company should have a DNI policy in place, and they should absolutely adhere to it. And companies have got to meet various, you know, standards around that. So there's nothing holding you back. And I'd say there wasn't anything before DNI anyway. You know, go for it. Just, just do your best. Get out there. You can do it. And, um, you know, anybody can get to the top with determination and hard work, honestly. I mean, I never dreamt in a million years I'd be here. I think my, my biggest thrill was, you know, and I don't, I don't mind sharing it, my biggest thrill, I was so chuffed to get onto the Council of Lloyds. To me, that was phenomenal. I've spent 40 years around this market. I love this market. I love this industry. It's, it's, it's got so much to offer and it's been so much fun. I've made so many really great friends. And to me, that was sort of the epitome of, of, of getting there. And it made me think that all the sweat, the hard work, you know, tears along the way, and there have been tears along the way, um, honestly, has been worth it. It really has. Talking about, you know, plans to grow and expanding on the future, how do you think we can engage more innovation outside of the core insurance community to ensure that we are, you know, constantly pushing that that innovation and that kind of diversity of thought. I think I think you know what we've got to be much better at promoting the industry. So I think you know 
Mike, you make a good point. One of the things I think we're really bad as an industry is we're not good at promoting it. And I'm probably being a bit naughty now, but I kind of wonder, some of the people who go around and try and bring in younger people from universities, you tend to think, God, are they going to be, you know, the dull, the dull people in, you know, a grey outfit and say, oh, come into insurance. And, you know, the university students are going to go, my God, you know, no way. And if you don't have a relationship or if you don't know somebody who's in this industry, the first thing you're going to think about if somebody says insurance is probably, you know, a door-to-door salesman selling, you know, some sort of life insurance, which I couldn't think of anything, you know, more boring. So I think, you know, what we need to do is we need to promote it as probably one of the most exciting, you know, and dynamic industries out there because of what I said earlier about it touches every single thing in life. It touches, our industry touches. And without insurance, the world would not exist. You wouldn't be able to get on a plane. I know you can't at the moment, but car or train or anything. So it is key. And so we've got to be better at promoting it out to very, very different groups of people. And that is probably different skill sets um, and bring them in. So probably many more data scientists, maybe many more general scientists. Maybe we need to bring more engineers in. Um, So to me, that's, again, another key part where the industry has got to evolve and got to change its old fashioned sort of dynamics to look at, you know, as we as we face the challenges of a changing risk landscape, we've got to change probably, you know, the skill base too and the skill set. So I think that's something that will naturally have to evolve. Um, you know, we've seen it with cyber. You know, nobody really knew about cyber a few years ago. It was never a class. Now it's a massively fast growing class and people have got to adapt to, you know, all the threats that cyber come in and you need data scientists and you need people who understand that world so i think you know bringing and attracting different types of people is absolutely critical and i think companies are becoming much more aware of doing that and certainly you know just speaking from you know guy carpenter we are on a mission to go out and to you know attract diverse you know skill sets and diverse you know young younger talent pool for the future and we want to do a lot more by promoting those younger people giving them opportunities to learn about leadership a lot quicker because i think the younger generation are in much more of a hurry than we were they want things much faster because life is changing so much faster so i think it's yeah. i think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating industry i think the next generation are going to have such an amazing time in it it's um, it'll be very interesting to watch it unfold no, and I, I love your comment. I, I remember when I first joined the industry and I would go to, you know, friends' houses for dinner and they'd ask what I did and I'd say, oh, I work in insurance, you know, almost apologetically. And and now I, I say it with, you know, proudness because, you know, it is a fantastic industry we all work in. And like you say, without, you know, without what the insurance industry does, you know, we couldn't, you know, build big infrastructure projects. We couldn't, you know, allow planes to fly in the sky when they are able to. Um, so I think you're right. There is a lot more around that piece of, you know, presenting it to the younger generation and, and really showcasing what a dynamic sector it is and will have to be as we go forward. And I would just say, you know, if anybody's just stuck in, a, in an area where, they're, you know, they're not enjoying it or anything, don't give up on the industry. You know, change, try and get moved to something different that does interest you because, you know, they're probably, look, we all like different things and that's what makes it an interesting world. But there's going to be something for everybody in the industry. So, you know, find your find your place, find the bit that's going to really interest you the most and, and try and move into that if you're not there already. How, how do we make sure that London, 
London um, as a kind of centre of excellence stays relevant. You know, if we're looking about hybrid and working from home, um, in some respects, there is some threats that exist there. How do you see the, the London market um, in, in that respect staying relevant? Um, look, I think I think London's got so much to offer as a city. I mean, it's probably one of the most diverse um, cultural cities in the world. If you think about it, it's got, um, you know, the arts, um, everything around the arts, theatre, music. It, it's an amazing city. And never underestimate the attraction of London's people. And we're a very open society. You know, we accept, we attract, you know, different diverse cultures in. It's one of the great things about our country. So that's a major, major plus. We're positioned incredibly well. We're so close to Europe. You know, it's, it's, um, we've got, we're easy access. Everybody can get there, uh, get to London. It's a hub for, you know, global tra travel. Um, it's the centre, as I said earlier, it's the centre of fintech. It's the centre of insurtech. So it's got a huge amount going in. It's, it's classed as, you know, the financial centre of the world. So, you know, we certainly punch way above our weight as, as a city. And I think, you know, we've got all that going for us. So, you know, I think there's an, a huge amount going for us, which is really, really exciting. And I think, you know, what, what we've got to just do better about is, is you know, Taking, taking that diverse culture and putting it to the best use of the industry to make sure that we do stay relevant and we've got to keep moving at a fast pace. The quicker we can adapt and, and install technology that can make things flow a lot smoother and a lot more sort of um, cost effectively, the better for the industry because that money can be reinvested into to new ideas and new things and new ventures. So again, it's, a, it's an exciting time. Talking about the fallout uh, or the kind of merger with the um, with Aon and Willis, you know, just someone's curious as to why size is so important and the reduced competition. What's your thoughts around around that activity and, and that space as those two firms come together? Well, I think you know, look, they're, they're two big operations. I think it's um, you can look at it from so many different ways. I I think that in some ways. Um, in some ways, for the customer, is it is it bad because you know you're you're removing another level of competition? And as I said earlier, I think competition is really important. But at the same time, you know, if you look at it from the client's point of view, the big guys have got so much to offer. I mean, you know, one of the attractions of me moving into a big platform from a tiny platform is the global reach, and you know the the the, the tools and the access to data and technical capabilities, which I can have in the global reach of an organization like, you know, the one I'm in now, uh, MMC, compared to, you know, my tiny little independent broker, I didn't stand a chance. So I think, you know, there's huge value on both sides of things. I mean, you can look very critically and say, oh, God, it's just going to be two big brokers now. But, you know, there are, there are a number of medium-sized brokers who are doing extremely well, and you've got some new startups. So marketplace and that's what makes it exciting and I think it's important it stays there and I'd like to see you know more new startups and um, you know more challenges because I think that drives people to do to deliver a better better performance and a better job so you know to me that's always going to get you know people spitting out I think if you look at it from the underwriting side you know a lot of underwriters got trapped in big organizations and you know they may be restricted from writing the portfolios and you know, as people fight for capacity now within the underwriting operations, 
you know, you can get people, you know, frustrated, fed up. And if there's an opportunity to go to a more nimble startup, um, that's going to be very attractive too. So I think you're going to see, you know, quite a lot of moving around people um, in the industry as it continues to do that. Um, and I think that that will be interesting to watch too. Given the incredible uh, claims payout for the cat losses, do you foresee the insurance industry either one, charging fossil fuel companies much more premium immediately or and or two, the insurance industry not insuring fossil fuel projects in the near future? I think that move is already kind of happening. But what are your thoughts on that from a reinsurance perspective? I think I think it's a it's a major challenge and it's something that the the industry's got to adapt to very, very quickly. I mean, I it's really funny. This week I must have had 60 emails pinging through on my mobile phone, and I'm not sure how they've got my private email um, from as a as a council member from various people saying Lloyd's got to do more about you know green energy and climate change and everything else. Um, so it's something I think is going to be absolutely the forefront of every company. And, and certainly, you know, we are the largest energy broker in the world. So we have a challenge because obviously, historically, you know, we've been insuring coal mines and coal mining and everything like that for years and years and years. And that's the way, you know, machinery was was um, fueled. But as we move on, you know, people wanting clean energy and everything else, there will be a massive drive as there is in, you know, the auto industry. So I think the answer is. Yes, I think, you know, I can't, I think it was Anna who asked the question. I think, you know, it will be interesting to see will there be fines and things brought in to sort of force people to adapt a much more sort of greener view on energy. Um, I don't have the exact answer, but I'm just giving you, you know, certainly what I've seen and what I've heard about. It's something being taken very, very seriously, not only, you know, in, in our company, but certainly Lloyd's, Lloyd's are taking it very seriously as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you loud and clear on that one. I think most of us probably do on, on this as well. And I think this links back into earlier where you were talking about innovation um, and as we're trying to battle all of us working from home and um, kind of carve out our own, our own niche there. One of the questions is, the other thing that may suffer is the ability to come up with creative ideas because as we all know, um, you know, personal interaction is a huge feeder for innovation. Do you agree and, and what are your thoughts on that uh, it, it, it's exactly my point i was trying to make earlier that i think you know when you're when you're sitting around a table and bouncing ideas it's when when you get creative when you spark off each other and i think you can do a certain amount of that on a zoom call but it's never the same as that personal interaction it's the spontaneity of things that just happen when you're in a room with people and i think you know certainly from what i'm seeing within you know gc that the teams are anxious to get back together. I think people really want to get back, you know, to face-to-face -face interaction, especially as we go into year end. Now, does it mean if they were stuck at home, they couldn't have that, things won't get done? No, things will get done, but I still think there will be things that will suffer slightly from that lack of face-to-face -face sort of interaction. So, um, you know, I agree with, with the comments that I think that the industry still needs that. And I think there will still, you know, however much technology there is, the value of face-to-face -face contact remains really, really important in our industry. From my side and from the ISD, a sincere thank you for uh, certainly a very candid um, and open insight today. Um, it's been a fantastic uh, sharing session I think for all of us and um, and really appreciate some of the candid responses 
Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll hand the final button to you. Well, listen, I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've really loved it. Um, we could go on chatting for hours, Kelly. <laughs>